Hello and welcome to Nerd Girl Musings Podcast. My name is Jen and I'm so glad you're here. Today we're talking about Ready Player One. This will be the first major podcast for Nerd Girl Musings and I wanted to start it off with something that I find a lot of fun. Our story takes place in 2045 when much of humanity uses the virtual reality software Oasis to escape the desolation of the real world. We follow along with Wade Watts as he finds clues to a hidden game that promises the ownership of the Oasis to the winner. He and his four friends try to complete it before a corporation run by Nolan Sorrento can do so. In the movie, it's pretty simple. You have to find three keys to get to the egg, and then you gain control of the Oasis. The book is more complicated. They have three keys as well as gates that they have to find and complete in order to get the egg and get control of the Oasis. When our story starts, it really depends if you're watching the movie or reading the book for what comes first. In the book, we have a high school senior that's desperate to escape the stacks and prevent Sorrento from winning the contest. He is the first one to figure out the clue and the first to win the copper key, or so he thinks. When he emerges from the challenge, he runs into Artemis, who had actually been there for five weeks trying to figure out how to beat the lich at the end and get the key herself. So we have a little bit of witty banter, and she prevents him from leaving because she says competition brings out the best in her. Parsifal also gives her a hint so she can win the joust game and get the copper key as well. In the movie, someone else had found the first clue, which opened up a portal that leads to the race that's the first major scene in the movie. Parzival already has his DeLorean, but doesn't have enough money for gas, so he's racing at the end to collect coins from all the crashed cars. This is also the first time that we see Artemis. We don't know who she is, but we can take it by Parzival's reaction that she's a pretty big deal in the Gunter world. Uh, One fun fact here, if you listen closely, just before H hits the back of it, the 1966 Batmobile comes to a skidding stop. The sound effect made by the skid is the Batman theme song, the na 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 na. So you have to turn it up and listen closely, but it's it's a fun little throwback to the Batmobile. So really, if I look at the book and what I enjoyed, I really enjoyed digging into all the trivia. I absolutely love random facts, movie quotes, sound song bites. Uh, you know, even now today, I, there's so many random facts floating around in my brain, and I like being able to to pick them out every now and then and to quote some obscure line from Golden Girls or, you know, Roseanne or something. You know, we have a coworker uh, that writes song lyrics up each day, and I love being able to walk by and take a quick look and guess the song and the artist just because it happens to be stuff that I know. I also really like that you feel that you're here to help them along to figure out all their clues and to decipher the limerick and the quatrain. We don't get to spend much time doing that in the movie, but the book goes through a a lot of painstaking research time, and it wouldn't make for good TV or good movie to have us peering over their shoulder for hours on end. I also like watching the 
the relationship develop over months and months, especially between Parzival and Artemis. In the movie, he meets Samantha pretty quickly in real life. Uh, but in the book, they don't meet in real life until the very end. It doesn't work for a movie because it, it just wouldn't it wouldn't give the same screen time and stuff to each actor, but in the book it works really good. Mainly they're spending all their time in the Oasis, so that's where we see them develop. The other thing I like is the kids outsmart the adults because of the love that they have for the obscure 80s trivia, sort of like I do, uh, but it falls in the same theme that a lot of other movies in the 80s did. You've got... Uh, War Games and Iron Eagle, um, Goonies, Gremlins. It's always the kids that are saving the day. So I just like that overall. It, it was a feel-good generation. Overall, the book is much darker, and there are some pretty serious themes in it. Daito and Shoto are both homebound and supported by their families because they're addicted to the Oasis. Wade talks about his plans if Sorrento gets to the egg first, how he's going to jump off the roof of his apartment. There's also some discussion on race, poverty, homophobia. It gives us more of a picture as to what these guys are fighting for or who they're fighting against. So if I look at the movie itself, uh, there's a few things that I really liked that I think they did well they brought to the screen Samantha being part of a rebellion against IOI is very interesting. I like to think of her as the leader of this rebel group fighting in the real world. And then on the other side, she's Artemis working inside the Oasis. The other part of the movie I, I liked was the distracted globe. It's one of my favorite scenes. I don't know if it's just because of the music or um, Artemis saves the day here. She protects Parzival. And she doesn't wait for him to save her or to do something spectacular. She just jumps right in. She's prepared. Uh, that's one of my biggest pet peeves in a movie is when uh, the female has to wait for the male to rescue her. If we look at the music in the movie, um, initially John Williams, who typically does do collaborations with Steven Spielberg, was said to be scoring the film. But there was another project of Spielberg's that he was working on, and uh, so he was not able to do the music for this. But Steven Spielberg had requested some specific pieces uh, from Back to the Future and The Shining for certain scenes. The book was written by a guy named Ernest Klein, and he wrote it in 2011. He said that his inspiration was Willy Wonka. He got thinking that what if Willy Wonka was a video game designer and hid his golden key inside of the game? And that was how the idea of Ready Player One was born. There was apparently a fierce bidding war for the rights to the movie one year before the book was even published. Uh, Warner Brothers outbid Paramount and 21st Century Fox in order to be able to get the production rights. Steven Spielberg signed on as the director, and he said it was the third hardest film that he has ever made behind Jaws and Saving Private Ryan in that order. He often felt a younger director should do it, and he reserved the right to call somebody to help him. Spielberg realized that he had a major impact on the 80s and that his movies are referenced in the book quite frequently. In fact, Parzival often refers to his um, notes as his grail diary 
in the spirit of Indiana Jones. So Spielberg wanted to cut those references out, but he did agree to leave in the DeLorean and the T-Rex, but it took some convincing from Ernest Cline in order to do that. He said that it was like filming two movies at once. One they filmed in the motion capture studio in London where Harry Potter was filmed, and the real-world scenes were filmed like normal, but they used actual film to give it that gritty, dark look uh, into that real world. Ready Player One, as in the book, plays homage to popular culture from various time periods, mainly the 70s and 80s, but also extending into the 90s, 2000, and 2010s. Reviewers have identified well over 100 references to films, television shows, music, toy, video games, anime, and comics from these eras. Klein did not have any issues with copyrighted elements when he was publishing the book, but he was aware that securing all necessary rights would be a major obstacle for a film adaptation. This task was eventually made easier thanks to Spielberg's reputation within the film industry. They spent several years securing the rights for copyrighted elements used in the film long before filming began, knowing that some scenes would not be possible without certain copyrighted elements. In the end, Spielberg estimated that they managed to get about 80% of what they had wanted uh, for the movie, noting that in some cases the filmmakers were able to secure rights for some but not all of the characters that they wanted. In negotiating with Warner Brothers, they could not secure Close Encounters of the Third Kind from Columbia Pictures, despite the latter being one of Spielberg's first movies as a film director. Blade Runner, which is an important part of the plot in the book, was off-limits as Blade Runner 2049 was in production at the same time as Ready Player One. So they had to get creative with movies that were visually interesting, and so the team decided to have them play through the events of The Shining, which Spielberg was able to secure rights to as an homage to his friend Stanley Kubrick. The scenes for The Shining are some of my favorites. I particularly loved how H asks show if it's scary. And just you can just tell that H, though is this nine-foot-tall org, is terrified. Uh, they were able to recreate the scenes using CGI to make it appear like it was right out of the movie. And if you ever have a chance to watch some of the behind-the-scenes um, little clips, they're fascinating to watch how they created the set, and then used CGI in there. After The Shining, the book and the movie split again on how we get to the final key. In the book, Wade is on the run after IOI tries to have him killed. So he creates this new identity in another city, and he hatches a desperate plan to infiltrate IOI using hacks that he bought online. He is risking it all, but he feels so desperate, and he sees that this is the only way to stop Sorrento, essentially stop him or die trying. He allows himself to be captured and turned into an indent at the Loyalty Center, where he's forced to work off his debt as a technical support representative. There's a great section in the book. It's, uh, it's basically a scene out of his day, and I don't know if it's me working in call centers for 20 years, but this part really just cracked me up more than normal, but it's well worth the read or the listen to as he helps one of his customers, and I won't spoil that for you. Anyway, during the day, he's working. At night, when he's supposed to be sleeping, he's hacking his way into the IOI database looking for any information that he can find. Wade finds a memo where Sorrento had ordered 
essentially the top five to be killed off. And so he knows the only way to protect his friends is to break out of the indent center and go find them so they can stop Sorrento. Once back in the real world, he makes contact with H and they send word out to everyone to meet in H's basement. Unbeknownst to them, Ogden Morrow had been keeping an eye on the group and offers to fly all of them back to his compound. So he flies uh, Shoto from Japan, Artemis from Canada, and then gets Z and H out of Ohio back over to Oregon. Everyone is relying on the plan that Wade had put into motion that at noon the orb was going to fall. So they blast out an email, they go to their vid feeds and get everybody from the Oasis to come together so they can take down IOI and Sorrento. In the movie, it's actually Artemis that is taken by IOI and made into an indent. So Wade and and everybody, they were able to find her and unlock her so she can get out of the little box that she's in. And she runs up to Sorrento's rig to look for information on the orb. And because she's a mage, she learns the spell that's needed to essentially turn off the orb and joins the Sixers as a way to find Wade and, and help the others to get to the gate. Some of the scenes in the movie at this point are actually quite good. And I love watching how they were able to get them to act in the real world like their avatar is being knocked over or killed or scared or something. It's it's just a fun way that they put those two together. Uh, just before Parzival is able to solve the final clue for the key, Sorrento uses the Cataclyst and destroys everything and everyone. But again, here's another split. In the book, he had played a perfect game of Pac-Man, which got him a free life. And in the movie, he had had that interaction with the curator at the beginning and the curator had flipped him a quarter, which was the free life. So because he's the only one that survives, he has the key and he is able to then get the egg. Overall, I really enjoyed the book and the movie together. I think they complete one another as books and movies usually do. And I think the moral of the story here is for us to remember to disconnect every now and then to spend a little less time online, maybe on social media, and to spend more time in the real world having meaningful relationships with people and developing those relationships. That you can have fun and do things online, but the the real world presence is equally as important. As all good movies go, the boy gets the girl, everyone lives, and they all live happily ever after. So that's our story. I certainly thank you for hanging out with me for a little while as we went through some of my favorite scenes and the little bits of trivia that I was able to share with you. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoy both the book and the movie. So if we think towards next week, I feel it's only fair that we continue on an 80s theme. And I think we're going to do Goonies. Goonies is one of those movies that's timeless, uh, You don't necessarily think of technology or anything with that movie, so it's good whether you're coming upon it for the first time in 2020 or you're reliving it for, 
Yeah, umpteenth time. And so that's going to be the plan for next week. Make sure you check that out and tune in next week. Hit that subscribe button so that way you know when the podcast is posted. And I'll see you then.